Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Kyle Burkholder. I'm pastor here at Covenant, one of the elders that has the privilege of leading the church. And we are closing our Undeniable Sermon series today, uh, starting with John, everybody's favorite little liar, okay? So first, have you ever seen a cuter liar on earth? Uh, but second, that's pretty incredible. I almost admire his ability to deny truth in this moment. My favorite part of the video for sure is when his mother takes him over to the sprinkles that are obviously um, strewn all over the kitchen and says, why are they empty? And he says, they're not empty. He, he catches her on a technicality and you hear him say a second time, they're not empty. And he's trying to actually change the conversation and get her in trouble. Like, look, mom, easy with the empty stuff. That's not true. John, there's sprinkles on your face. And what's his deniability in that? It sprinkles on your face, John. And he goes, uh, nope. <laughs> what are you supposed to say? I admire his ability to stick to his story. I admire his ingenuity in trying to turn the tables on her. Um, anyone who has experienced life, any amount of life at all, knows that denial is not um, simply reserved for children, right? Most people have been on both sides of denial, whether you are the denier or the one staring at someone with sprinkles on their face and asking them to please come clean. Lots of guilty people plead not guilty. Lots of trouble gets denied at first. There's uh, something about denial that is fundamentally hurtful. It's like a double break of trust when we deal with denial. So, so like John, he has this minor problem where he ate the sprinkles. His teeth are full of sprinkles. There's sprinkles on his face. There's sprinkles in the kitchen. And his mom says, did you eat the sprinkles? Well, he's already strike one. He ate the sprinkles. And so like you're already behind the eight ball, John. But then he goes strike two, 12, 643 when he just keeps denying it. And so the original betrayal is eating the sprinkles. But then the denial over and over and over continues to give this greater wounding to mom. And we've all experienced that in one form or another. As adults, we don't tell many lies about sprinkles, but we have our own wounds that we carry. So what we're going to do today is look at the most famous denial in history, and then we're going to ask the question if there's any way to recover trust again. Can relationship that is utterly broken be fixed? And if so, how? So we're going to pick up the story of Jesus as Jesus has been arrested, and he's being mocked and beaten. His friends have scattered. And so what we're going to do is put it up on the screen with you in Matthew chapter 26. Scripture says, Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, And a servant girl came to him and said, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. He denied it before them all. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth and he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while longer, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are with them. Your accent gives you away. Like we know. And then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken, which was before the rooster crows, you will disown me or deny me three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. It's sort of this crushing scene as we see Peter. And it sort of escalates quickly on him, doesn't it? It starts with this an indirect denial. There's sprinkles on your face. Uh, no. Peter is said, hey, aren't you with that Jesus? And, and Peter doesn't say, no, I'm not with Jesus. He goes, I, I don't know what you're talking about. He sort of refuses to look at, at the accuser and he kind of does an indirect thing. And then asked again, he has to be more direct and forceful in his response. Hey, you're with him. No, I'm not. The third time comes back and now Peter almost believes his own life. So he says with conviction, he curses and swears and says, I don't know the man. And the rooster crows and Peter realizes that he did exactly what Jesus told him he would do. And Peter being the passionate disciple, the one that would chase after Jesus, the one who drew a sword when Jesus was arrested, Peter realizes that he has betrayed and denied the one he loved the most. 
That feeling of being caught is a dreadful one. That feeling in your soul when you know you're caught, that's a terrible feeling. In high school, I was uh, in an English class. It was a remedial English. I was in AP English, and it seemed like a whole lot of work. And so I said, let me not be in that. And so I asked my guidance counselor if I could be in a lesser English, and they put me in honors English. And I said, this seems like a whole lot of work still. Is there a way I could be lazier and still graduate? And they said, absolutely, we can put you in remedial English, and you can do English there. And so remedial English, we had a lot of what she called independent reading time, which just meant sit at your desk and don't, don't mess anything up. And I'm not really going to pay attention. And so, A, I volunteered myself into this class that was going to be low stress and low work. But B, there's a, there's a justice thing in me. I don't know if you know this. And as soon as I got in that class, I expected her to teach me like she was the greatest professor in the history of the planet. And she didn't really care. As if she was receiving from us that we didn't really care. And I thought, this is an injustice. You better teach us. I'm going to teach her a lesson one day. And that day came when a former student of hers comes to the door there we are in our English class, blowing spitballs, not reading, whatever we're supposed to be doing, we weren't doing. And, and this former student starts talking with the teacher, and the teacher does this thing where the class, you're the class, and she turns her back to us and leans against the doorframe and talks to this former student for two minutes, and then five minutes, and then ten minutes, and my injustice meter goes through the roof, and I said, we are here to learn, guys. We should mutiny. To which everyone was like, don't mess this up. She's not even looking. Just Relax. But justice is a thing. And I said, we will fight for justice one way or another. I will teach her a lesson. Here's what I'm going to do. Cover me. And they're like, we don't know what that means. And I said, it doesn't matter. You don't have to do anything. Just don't make a noise. I'm going to go out the window because it's a first story classroom. And then I'm going to come all the way around the building. and I'm going to come right back in. And then I'm going to walk in that same door she's leaning on. And she's going to have to wonder, how did he get out? How did he get back in? And what have I been doing? I'm not a very good teacher. I feel ashamed. And gosh, he was right. And that's what she's going to think in my mind. And so I'm going to get out the window, come back in, and everybody's going to be saved. Good for us. I make my move. She's still lounging. She's still teaching. I'm starting to go out the window, the 1954 style window. I have to open this thing and it has that weird arm bar that you have to lock on the knob on the window. And so I'm out there and it's like half a window now. So now you're kind of squeezing out half a window. And that's when the trouble starts. Somebody giggled, somebody laughed, somebody dropped a pencil. Who knows what happened? But I'm almost entirely out the window. I'm almost free to complete this plan of incredible justice. Only my feet left in the classroom. Kyle! You know? Somebody, somebody ruined it. She's caught me. And now I'm doing like a handstand outside the room with my feet in the window, and I don't know exactly what to do at this point. Because what do you do when you're caught, but your feet are in the window, but you're not? And she's like, get back in here. And I'm like, I don't think you know how this works. So, walk of shame, I had to actually get out of the window, and then it's, it's really hard to get back in. So then I went ahead and walked around anyway, just so I could say I did it. And I came back in the front door, and she was waiting with this pink piece of paper that sent me to the vice principal. And I walked into his office, and he goes, what did you do? And I said, there's been a lot of trouble at home. And he said, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Worked every time. The point of my story is that it wasn't a very good feeling to get caught. No matter where we've been, we've all experienced that feeling at some point in life where we just were on the wrong side of something, and we got caught, and you go, oh, what now? At some point, the rooster crows on all of us, and we all know that we're cooked. It's whether it's indeed like me, or it's in denial like Peter, every single one of us knows that feeling of being on the wrong side of that sort of thing. Sometimes it's sprinkles, and sometimes it's much more sinister. And we really start to feel the weight of brokenness. The, the, game and the, the guilt and the shame start to crash in in our lives, and we, like Peter, 
whether inside or out, we begin to weep. And we realize that we live in a world of brokenness, that there's too many people in this room that are too familiar with broken relationships. Nothing hurts like the brokenness that comes from betrayal and denial. And it's the position that every single one of us has sat in at some point in our lives, whether with others or with God. See, with God, the reality of our relationship, we're scarred by sin. We're all born in what the Bible calls iniquity. It's a fancy biblical word that just means bent. That God created you to be just like you were intended to be, to be an image of him. Perfect creation. And sin has created this thing in us, this iniquity, that we are all born slightly bent. We're being broken. And so instead of like we're supposed to be, we're just ever so slightly crooked. We know this is true because we see videos like this kid. You didn't teach this kid to lie. Mom didn't teach him, sit him down, give him a lesson, put him on the iPad, say, hey, learn in this app. Figure out how to lie next time. He just did it. It's just in him. He's just born slightly broken. And it grows with us as we go. You don't teach kids to hit or to steal or to lie or to punch. You don't teach them any of that. They just know it. And as we get older, it, it changes. And the things that we're doing, these things that we're betraying, denying, they grow with us. And the consequences grow with us. God sees this brokenness, his creation, living in a bent state that he did not intend for us, and he acts. God loved the world so much he sent Jesus. So let me talk through and walk through the scenes that follow Peter's denial. So Peter denies Jesus, and then we walk through the very familiar crucifixion of Christ. Peter scurries off into the night, and Jesus is handed over to Pontius Pilate, the governor, who says, I don't have anything to charge him with. And yet the the religious people, the religious people, the chief priests and the high religious people, they say, let's take him. We want him. Arrest him. Let us have him. Crucify him. And he says, I'm not going to do that. He didn't do anything wrong. And they said, give us Barabbas. Give us the actual criminal and crucify Jesus instead. We'll make a switch for you. To which the governor washes his hands and says, look, whatever you're going to do, this isn't on me. And it's the first time we see super clearly our role in this, in that the guilty was let free as Jesus went to take his place. So you and I, we are Barabbas. We continue through the story. We keep looking at what's happening and there's this uproar. This crucify him as the religious leaders are there. The religious leaders are saying, give us Jesus and we will crucify him. And so those who take him, they take him away. And the uproar of the religious leaders is only drowned out when the uproar of creation falls. When Jesus hangs his head and breathes his last on the cross and it says the earth shook and the sky went dark. There was the uproar of the religious people that was then overwhelmed by the uproar of creation. And I would say this is the moment where religion died and relationship became real. Where religion could not be louder than creation itself. Where God says, I will overwhelm what you've intended to do with my own. The curtain in the temple tears in two and no longer is man separated from God. There's reports of the tombs being cracked open and dead people walking in Jerusalem, which is a crazy thing to say. And yet it wasn't refuted by the eyewitnesses at the time. They said, no, we saw that. It was strange. It happened. Something profound is happening in Jerusalem. Something as profound is happening right outside the gate. Something profound is happening when the earth roars in support of this king. Matthew 27, 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Do you hear that language? Can I translate that? The Roman soldiers and centurions, the men who drove the nails into the hands and feet of Christ are essentially saying something undeniable is happening. 
something undeniable is happening in this place. That was really the Son of God. He was buried by his friends and put into a borrowed tomb. On the third day, the earth shakes again. The stone is rolled away. An angel is sitting on top as his friends come to check on the tomb. They say, Jesus isn't here. He is risen. But there's more. Because Jesus doesn't just come to defeat death. He comes to restore life. He comes to restore your life. So come with me to a beach on the Sea of Galilee. The story continues, and Jesus has appeared twice to his disciples already. He's shown up twice after death and resurrection to be with them. But the disciples, many of them fishermen, are back out doing what they know to do. It's got to be a radically confusing time that this rabbi they followed for three years who said he was the Son of God was crucified, dashing their hopes and dreams, and then has appeared to them and said, guys, I am who I said I was. And so there's this cloud over them, this cloud of confusion, but also this horizon of hope as they think maybe there's something in this. Maybe there's something happening here. And yet they find themselves fishing. Because when we don't know what else to do, we go back to what we used to do. And so these fishermen called by Jesus to be fishers of men have gone back into their boats and they've gone back with their nets and they're a hundred yards out in the Sea of Galilee. Perhaps they're fishing, perhaps they're nursing their own shame and guilt that they had deserted their Savior. They had deserted their rabbi in his time of need. So their hearts are lifting, but their hearts are heavy. And this man appears to them on the beach. In John chapter 21, we'll read from there, the man is Jesus. He calls out to them, friends, a hundred yards out, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Then throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some, he says. When they did, they weren't unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat. Peter starts swimming towards Jesus. The others are rowing as fast as they can. They're towing a net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. Verse 9 says, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Peter climbs back into the boat and drags the net ashore. It was full of fish, but even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and he did the same with the fish. This was the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. What we see in this picture is Jesus is welcoming his friends back. They're out fishing, doing the only thing they know to do. Back to their old habits, back to their old way of life. And he goes, guys, I'm still here. So he welcomes them ashore, and he's got a fire going on the beach. He's got fish that he's grilling for them and fresh bread ready for them in the morning. Imagine their range of emotions. Jesus experienced an excruciating death that they watched from the shadows after they had abandoned him. And now he welcomes them into this scene of utter serenity of perfect peace. Peter is is especially fun to watch in this scene as Peter is as excitable and impulsive as ever. The same Peter who yells out in front, the same Peter who slices off the ear of those arresting Jesus, that Peter is the one who sees the Lord and he jumps in the water and swims his way and he can't wait to be with his Savior. But we have to wonder what Peter carries as well. Peter carries his own shame, his own guilt from his denial. When the rooster crowed, Peter has that in the back of his mind as he goes to meet Jesus on the beach. We keep reading. When they had finished eating, 
Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He asked Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. He said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt at this point because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter denied Jesus three times. Three times Jesus restores Peter. Three times betrayed, three times restored. He gives him three opportunities to say, I love you. Don't you see? Jesus is undeniable. Jesus is undeniable. Even Peter who denied him, even Jesus who predicted, you will deny me, and Peter denies him, Jesus still offers him an opportunity back into relationship. He says, I am undeniable. Do you love me? You cannot sin or betray or deny your way out of the love of God. You cannot sin or betray or deny your way out of the love of God. You cannot outrun God and you cannot outrun grace. And we are a culture of runners. We run from one problem to the next, from one relationship to the next, from one habit to the next. We cannot keep our attention on anything for more than five seconds. And yet, you can't outrun God. You can't outrun grace. You can't outrun your problems. But here's the problem with that is that God's waiting at the end of your problems. So even when you try, you always run back to God. There's a lot of reasons people are in church on Easter. Some it's tradition. Others, it's obligation. Some of you would rather not be here, and most of you would rather not be wearing that. That's okay. I would argue that you are here this morning because God is pursuing you. You're here this morning because God is pursuing you. There is no accident of your attendance. There is no coincidence of your presence in this room. You are here this morning because God is pursuing you. He is waiting on the beach of your life to restore you. In big ways, in small ways, in your big battle that you're fighting that everyone knows about, and your secret private shame that no one in this room would ever know, God is waiting to restore you. He is inviting you to be restored and to follow him with your days, to leave the nets behind. Every year we tell the same story. Every year Jesus invites us back into wholeness and restoration to true life free of sin and shame and guilt and pain. Every single year the same story is told. And like disciples, every year we have a choice to make. You can live the life that Jesus calls you to or you can return to your nets. You can go back to the thing you know. You can go back to the default. You can go back to the sin and the shame and the guilt and you can sit in the boat on the sea of regret. Or you can choose to receive restoration. You can choose to receive a once and for all eternal restoration in the invitation of Jesus. I like to think that when Peter swam up on shore and then the boat follows him in, and as the boat skids up on that sandy beach, Jesus says, bring me the fish. Peter jumps back in and grabs the net, and as he brings the net up, he drops that net on the beach. I like to imagine that the sound of that net hitting the wet sand wasn't the sound of the ropes on sand, but it was the sound of the chains falling off of Peter. The bondage of his sin and his shame, the guilt that came with his denial of his best friend, that when the net hits the beach, the sound is of the chains hitting the sand. That he's free. See, the beautiful thing about Jesus is it isn't about what you've done. It's not about what you've done. 
It's about what's been done for you. It's the only thing that makes Christianity different than everything else. Every other religion says it's about what you do, and Christianity says it's about what's been done for you. It's the cross that makes Jesus undeniable. Jesus refused to leave us broken. Instead, he took on our brokenness so that we could be made whole. It's the empty tomb that makes Jesus undeniable. The empty tomb. Jesus could not be defeated by death. Rather, he defeated death and overcame the grave. It is the restoration and the resurrection that makes Jesus undeniable that you have tried to find healing in a hundred different ways that every self-help book and program and mantra you have tried has fallen short of what you aim for. That we still find ourselves weary and broken and yearning for a savior. We look for any way to shake the shame, to shake the guilt, to shake the pain, to find healing, to drop the chains. The answer isn't in the world. The answer is Jesus. The answer is simply Jesus. Maybe today you need to encounter Jesus by the fire yourself. Maybe you need to come close to the living God and be warmed by the fire of his grace. Maybe today is your moment of true freedom and restoration. That in a day where it's easy to deny it, in a day like today where it's easy to put your head down and make it through and ignore the words and ignore that feeling in the pit of your stomach and push the guilt down and push the shame down just a little bit further and not deal with it today, Jesus is inviting you into restoration and it requires only that you drop the chains and say yes. Jesus says, follow me and know true life. Follow me. So he invites you into this room. He invites you to the beach side. He invites us next to the fire as it fire crackles and the fish are grilling and the smell of fresh bread is there on the beach. And Jesus invites you into that scene. And each and every one of us receive that whisper from God that says, do you love me? In spite of your shame, in spite of your guilt, in spite of your past, in spite of your history, that thing you carry that no one knows about, that thing that you wish no one would ever find out about, in spite of all that, do you love me? And you and I are left with that question. And your soul, this morning, is the answer, yes, Lord, you know that I do. Because if it is, then Jesus invites you into restoration. Jesus invites you, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He goes, then drop the chains. The old is gone, the new has come, you live life with me now. Leave the boat and follow me. Whatever you've done, wherever you are, whatever you are going through, big or small, his resurrection is your invitation to something new. He is risen and you are restored. He is risen and you are restored. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. As they do so, we're going to transition into a time of communion. As we worship, we have tables set in the front here. There's two here and one in the back. And it's another invitation of sorts. To remember what was done for us. The bread represents the body of Christ broken for us. The cup that we'll dip the bread in, that juice represents the blood of Christ spilled for us that we might be forgiven. We do this every week, but a day like today when he is risen, when we remember and we recognize and we talk through the story, it takes on a special significance to say that we can come to the table and remember. Come to the table and be restored. We come to the table and drop the chains at the foot of the table and take Jesus on again. I'd like to ask you to do something as we close. 
If you'd be willing to do so, would you just hold your hands open in your lap? Nothing wild, nothing for anybody to see. But just have open hands in your own lap. Each and every life holds something. Some shame or guilt, some old pain or wound. Some sense of not being good enough or being unworthy, something that's holding us back, some chain on these wrists that keeps us from following the God of the universe. Every single life has that. What is yours? I'd ask you to think about holding that right now. That habit, that heartache, that thing that keeps you from looking into the eyes of God and saying, Lord, you know that I love you. Will you heal me? Maybe it's that thing that if people could see what you were holding, you would be cringing because you're so ashamed. Jesus isn't worried how shameful it is. He came and he gave his life that all sins would be forgiven, that all brokenness would be made whole, that every single part of every single one of us would be restored. So as you hold that thing in your hands, my invitation today is that you would be willing to release it. That when you stand to worship, when you come to communion, that you would release that thing that holds you back and you would instead take hold of the life of Christ for you, that the chains would fall and we would hear the echoes of them in this room. And the resulting shouts of praise would signal something greater than it's just Easter Sunday. They would signal a people marked by freedom. Let me pray for you. Lord, we hold in our hands the things that hold us from you. Some of us have walked with you for a long time and we find ourselves distant because we won't let go of these things. Lord, we drop them to you. We lay them at your feet. We remember what you've done for us. Lord, you know that we love you. Some of us, God, don't yet follow Jesus. And we're holding all this stuff that is the reason we can't follow Jesus. He'd never accept me, we think. God, I ask you to break through that lie. Open hearts to know that when we drop the chains of sin and take the hand of Jesus, that we are saved and we are free, that we are home and we are whole. Lord, I pray your spirit would move through this place. We would recognize that it is in you alone that life is found. It's in you alone that hope is real. So, Father, as we stand to sing, Father, I pray that you would give us that assurance today. You would find us in your presence by that fireside for now and eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.